my first career as a speaker is over. I'm gonna try to create a second one. And I think the same goes for restaurant owners, um, corporate events, managers, and, and many others in this turning point we are going through in the, in the woods that we find ourselves lost in. Um, and again, it doesn't really matter what you believe in in the long run as long as you believe in something. Welcome back to The Walter Show. In this episode, I meet with one of my most interesting friends. He's a futurologist. He was the speaker of the year in Sweden a couple of years back. And in these times, we all want to know what's going to happen in the future. So give it up for the tall and brilliant Magnus Lindqvist. Hello, Magnus, my futurologist friend. Hello. It's uh, great to be a part of your show. Thank you. It's so good to have you here. You're, you're also a very good old friend. We have been friends for, not for two decades, but in two decades or during two decades. Yeah. Two very different decades. And this is our third decade together. Yeah, and it's starting out in a strange way, right? You think? <laughs> what, what do you think about the world right now? You know, I have continuously failed to see or anticipate what comes next. I'm not a futurologist as much as I'm a failureologist. I quit my job the day before September 11th. And of course, the day after I thought, would they take me back? But I didn't go back. And since then, I've been a freelance worker, making PowerPoint, making speeches, touring the world. Um, in the spring of 2008, one of my clients were um, Fortis and ABN AMRO, a Belgian and um, a, a Dutch bank, respectively. And I was there to advise them on future thinking. And um, of course, you know, four or five months later, they were both bankrupt and went into receivership. In the past year, I've done a number of talks on IT, on travel, on innovation, continuously failing to see this apocalyptical scenario we are living in right now. So it's not just a strange, it's an unnerving time. It's, um, and and I, I feel a little bit ashamed. Oh, I, I, I think it might be, I should probably not berate myself too much for not having been able to predict this, but I, I do feel a sense of shame and guilt. But I think nobody, everybody knew that this could happen, right? This was a scenario that we've been talking about before, mm. but nobody saw it coming now or at least didn't want to see it coming now mm. right that's 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 human nature if we were to see like okay uh this catastrophe is going to happen very soon then nobody would invest in anything nothing would work i mean just believing that that there's a bright future ahead is the of the world right absolutely and and i've i've had so many conversations over the past month with people who've said oh i wish I would have done differently two years ago. 
guess what? If everybody would have saved more money two years ago, we would have had an economic depression in 2018 already. There's a great book um, by a German scientist who talks about future thinking and future scenarios. And he makes the point that it doesn't really matter what we people believe in as long as we believe in something. Y2K. Okay, let's believe in the fact that all computers will crash on New Year's Day, the year 2000. We're going to believe in this or we're going to put resources to that. We're going to hire lots of IT consultants. It's a great dream. It doesn't actually matter if it comes true. Same thing um, prior to, to um, 2008. You know, it's a great idea to believe that um, home ownership never defaults on their interest payments. We can build all of these new investment vehicles around that fact. I mean, these are great ideas and great dreams. And I think that, back to your point here, I think the big problem right now is that we're in a vacuum. I mean, we are literally in solitary confinement, which is a very effective um, torture device. And we have a hard time knowing what to believe in. Yeah, it's kind of like being lost in the woods, right? If you, if you have a, you walk in one direction towards something, you will probably be, hopefully be fine, at least mm. have a chance of mm. getting out. But if you're just paralyzed mm. and stay where you are, you die. Mm, there's so many trees around me. Yeah. 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 But I, we had it coming though. I should have been able to, maybe not specifically state the name of the virus or even that it would be a pandemic. But the past decade, I've noticed something interesting. Every conversation about the future has been tainted with a feeling of doom and gloom. You know, robots will steal our jobs. Climate change will wreak havoc on ecosystems and the, the fine balance we live in. Larry Summers, um, former finance minister in the U.S. has talked about secular stagnation. Where we can borrow to 2% interest rate, yet we don't build roads and schools, at least not in the U.S. Um, everything, and, and you know, overpopulation, over-tourism, over-consumption, all of these ideas is what the future has been made of. The one exciting topic has still been felt a little bit existentialist, and that's, of course, digital disruption. You know, somebody's going to come to eat your lunch. Look at what happened to Kodak or Nokia or uh, record companies and so on. So we've lived, I guess, for 10 years anticipating some kind of giant event. Um, it's almost as if we wished for this to happen and my theory sometimes is that the reason we see such a dramatic reaction now around the world is that many people secretly, subconsciously longed for a kind of reset, reboot, where things were not continuously unsustainable. That's my theory, at least. That's my philosophy right now. It's my, it's my route out of the woods, so to speak. I guess it's easier to find meaning in uh, a troubled situation than in a perfect one where everything's just cruising along and 
you get your takeout food and everything. You don't really know what to focus on because you kind of have everything. Mm-hmm. It's harder, harder to find meaning in that kind of situation, right? So in a well, way- two two observations mm-hmm. there. There's a great science fiction short story called Those Who Walked Away From Astellas. And Astellas is a utopia. It's a futuristic city where everybody, uh, just like the scenario you just described, everybody's unbelievably happy and healthy and wealthy and flying around in cars and glass skyscrapers. It's really one of those utopian-looking futurescapes. But some people are woken up at night by the sound of a child screaming in pain. But they ignore it and it's not there in the morning and they keep living and they do their takeout food and they enjoy life. And then the next night they hear that child screaming in pain again. And to make a short story even shorter, um, at the end of the novel, the citizens of Astellas realize that far beneath the city is a child being tortured. And the whole health and happiness of Astellas relied on the energy of that child being tortured. And the name, like I said, it's those who walked away from Astellas. So I think while it might seem nice now to have this careless living of, of just blissful happiness, it's an unrealistic scenario. The other reason we are usually better at negative scenarios than positive is that it's much easier to see what we will lose. If I tell you that something you valued, fresh air, your car, is going to be taken from you, you can kind of feel that or see that. But if I tell you something you've never heard of that you cannot even imagine, it's going to come along and make your life a lot better uh, that's a very difficult thing. What, what do you mean better? It cannot possibly be better. That's a, that's the illusion our brain has, right? Things are pretty good. Maybe not right now, but it will be eventually. So if you say, my life could be so much better, you're forced to admit that my life is not so good right now. And of course, gaining something that we've never heard of. You know, imagine explaining a smartphone to people from the Middle Ages. It's an abstraction on an abstraction on an abstraction. This is why most science fiction movies and books are dystopias and not utopias you know 15 years ago people had a hard time imagining mobile internet even though i mean we're kind of close to it you can kind of understand it's like internet but you can have it wherever you want to go Mm. i mean i I sometimes tell that story when i lectured at uh, stockholm school of economics Mm. and i lectured about i was um back then um, Spotify was kind of new and they invited somebody from Spotify to come and lecture. That person uh, couldn't go and they instead had me uh, to fill in. Mm. And I went there and I started talking about Spotify and this whole dream about having a central database of music and pe- people could share links rather than files and it's going to be amazing. And then after a while, it might, you know, 20 minutes in, some smart kid, they're already smart kids there, raised his hand and said, but Walter, you are... A- presuming now that everybody's going to have mobile internet mm. <laughs> you know that's and not that long ago did you say 10 years ago it must have been must have been like what 2007 maybe or something okay. like that well so just imagine if we go a couple of more decades back the idea that invisible things in the air is going to generate things like data and music and movies and images 
that that's always um, the mistake science fiction movies make because they only look at the visual things that you can see, spaceships and guns and skyscrapers and so on. Whereas very often the true discoveries, the things that really make a meaningful difference tend to be invisible. Uh, insights, thoughts, philosophies, ideas, or in this case, the mobile internet. I think too often we are too visual. We, sell, we ask people to visualize a future scenario. We don't ask them to think about what the future will smell like or feel like. And also, there is something deeply unpredictable about the unthinkable. It was famously said that if you, um, you can never predict the invention of the wheel, because if you could, you would already have invented the wheel. Something similar upon here, if you, if you look at insights and discoveries, how diseases might be cured in the future, um, or how we will obtain a greater level of happiness on an individual level, or maybe we realize that happiness in itself was some kind of virus spread illusion and we would be better off looking for something else. I mean, all of these things are, I'm not saying it cannot be done, but, but when I listen to futurologists that are good at it, it usually becomes very abstract, very complex, and therefore unsuitable to charge money for in corporate presentations, which is what I've been spending the past 15 years doing. But in a way, I, maybe it's inherent in futurology, because if it's, as you say, that the, the, the things that you can see are not gonna be the things that change the world in a huge way, and at the same time, one of the best ways, this was something I used to say 10 years ago when I lectured, one of the best ways to predict the future is to focus on what it's not going to change because that's going to be like 95% or 99% even maybe but that's not an that's that's more that sounds more like an exercise than an insight yeah, because yeah. we cannot possibly know that and percentage out of what i mean the f the universe is entropy right so it's not like it's going to be the same 100% in the future. Right, that is true. So, so and the whole 99%, 95% is, is is just to kind of say most things. Yeah, well well I mean Jeff Bezos always said that in a fast changing market focus on the things that don't change, which is a nice business development meme, but it doesn't necessarily enable you to think constructively or 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 or, or thought provokingly about tomorrow. But to your point, we need to put these obstacles ahead of us. And I, and I think we're trying to connect things here. The reason I and other people have not been able to predict a pandemic on this scale was that it was frankly too frightening, too much at odds with my personal philosophies about optimism or coping skills. So we have, we put an obstacle on how bad things can be. Similarly to your point, we have to put an obstacle on how things can change. Because if, if we say everything is gonna change, it's impossible for the cognitively limited human brain to imagine that. This has always been what I talk about when I talk about super intelligence. So the belief in some people now is that through 
the ability to synthesize artificial intelligence into what's known as artificial general intelligence, not artificial narrow intelligence, which is why we have chess computers and so on. So AGI will then in turn lead to cognitively enhanced computing power, which will supersede human level intelligence and maybe create some kind of super intelligent being. Now, very often this has been talked about in terms of fear and worry. We have things like the famous paperclip machine or you know, we have Nick Bostrom's book cover, which was about an owl. Imagine a few birds buying an owl to protect them. So it was a feeling of we're, we're touching something here that might hurt us. But I always like to think of dogs. Dogs are not as smart as human beings, so we humans can play fun games with dogs like fake fetch. We, we throw a tennis ball but we, we hold on to it. So the dog thinks that you've thrown the ball and it starts to run. And you can, you can do that over and over again. But that's not the best example of human level intelligence. We don't give Nobel Prizes to people because they fooled a dog for five hours. Because we humans are more intelligent than dogs, we also have things like ethics, future planning, realizing that sharing food might be better than to fight about it, etc. These are things that dogs cannot usually relate to. In the world of superintelligence, human beings are the dogs. There are dimensions and ways of thinking that we cannot possibly relate to because our brains are limited in the processing power in what they can and cannot see. And also, I think maybe in the sense that we are limited to concepts that we already know. We, we have the building blocks that we have. So mm. Yeah. Uh, which also, I think, kind of ties back to what we said about, you know, predicting the future using what is not going to change. Well, maybe that's the only way we have pretty much. I mean, those then we use the building blocks that we know. And if we want to think about things that disruptively, disruptively is going to change things, then that just becomes impossible because we don't have a way to see that or to to understand that unless we use the building blocks that we already have, which are the things that are not going to change, that we can add together and say that these two are going to be added together. Like we know what radio is and we know what the internet is and then we can add those together and we have mobile internet. But we yeah, use- so that, yeah, that's the... That's usually the core tenement of creativity studies, right? Take two existing ideas or combine them, make something new. Or in the words of Matt Ridley, innovation happens when ideas have sex. Yeah. So there's another, I wanna add more into this mix because to complicate matters, it's been a, in a new strand of evolutionary biology. Um, a lot of people have argued that Human beings only see things that matter to them on a kind of survival procreation scale. That's how we see the universe. We don't, we don't see um, a galaxy far away because we don't need to. We don't need it for our survival or procreation instincts. And thus evolution didn't make it. No, exactly. We, maybe somebody was born with that ability, but it didn't reward it. But we do respond on a very physical level to seeing somebody naked and depending on your sexual orientation very often somebody of the opposite gender um, 
speaking heteronormatively, um, will make you react in a way that abstract thoughts or views of faraway galaxies never will. And that brings out your wallet. It brings out <laughs> wallet or fighting instinct or your peacock feathers. Um, and I think, I think the learning here is that we are so limited in our ability, in what we can, in how we think, in, in how our thoughts work, and especially in how we use those mechanisms when we approach the fairly complicated matter of the future. Right, because we are, after all, kind of stuck in what evolution created this far. Yes, I think, I think that's, yeah. An evolution didn't, yeah, no, no you're right. I guess the, the new innovations that we are capable of innovating are mere mutations of what we have. That's about as far as we can go. And then when we tried to predict the future 200 years ahead, well, we don't have the tools mm. because we can only move. It's like a staircase. We have to you know, take one step to get to the next, right? Yeah, uh, and, and I think... Voltaire, the philosopher, also said that it's uh, very difficult, if not impossible, for a man to rise above the ideas of the time. Um, most people who were ahead of their time were not celebrated as geniuses. They were ostracized, killed, burned at the stake as a witch. So I think not only is it difficult to climb too many steps ahead, it's socially dangerous. And you go back to your wallet metaphor, it's darn near impossible to make money off of. M most money is to be made if you satisfy temporary demands of things, whether it be entertainment, food and beverage, certain drug um, addiction needs, whatever they might be. They're not built upon saturating demands for things that lie decades, or why not centuries ahead in time. We are, we are a pretty sad, blind animal as human beings when it comes to thinking about the future. And I don't think we see ourselves that way. We are homo chauvinistic in that we celebrate what it is to be human and we talk about how fantastic we are compared with the rest of the biosphere on earth and that we've been able to put um, people on the moon but we are pretty sad blind animals and what do we do with that insight in a constructive sense I think that's that's a good question to answer or, 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 or ask at least in the, in the times we find ourselves in. And I guess that all starts with accepting this fact perhaps, right? So we can start setting our expectations in terms of the next step we can take rather than the 10 staircases up that we can't reach right now. To be aware is to already be beyond. Yes, I, I agree. I think... Awareness, it all starts with that. Um, but I'm, I'm worried. Here's where me and Larry Summers agree. So Larry Summers, he was also the headmaster for Harvard 
university, but he was fired because he stupidly suggested that women might not be as good as math as men, and that's why they don't do well in the so-called STEM subject. So he was fired and shamed. That doesn't mean he's not a good thinker in certain senses, though. And secular stagnation, a concept he coined, is all about how we've reaped the low-hanging fruits of progress and globalization and so on. And we um, have a feeling of being somewhat saturated. If you, if you ask people now, and I've, like you, have had many innovation workshops, you know, the, the list of ideas that people come up with to make the world a better place is a pretty sad list because people haven't really thought about what does make better mean. And, and, and again, we have that illusion, right? So that the brain tells you that most things in your life are pretty good because if you would think otherwise, you might risk becoming depressed. No, so Larry Summers watches things like investment and he sees that um, most democracies, of which there are more these days, have put money into transfers and not infrastructure. So they've handed out cash to certain groups uh, for various reasons, instead of building bridges or high-speed trains or space flights or what you will. Um, we can borrow at a historically low rate, showing, of course, how cheap capital is. And just imagine how cheap capital is going to become in the coming decade after the bailouts we see after the corona crash right now. I mean, we're looking at a time where nobody will ever again want to save money in a bank because there will be negative interest rates on a consumer level. Yet because we don't have interesting enough long-term ideas with which to invest in, nothing happens. You put mean money into meaningless mutual funds and you have these stock market bubbles because you see some business models that sound funky. I mean, Spotify is in essence a utility. It's as exciting as water, gas, or sewage from a financial standpoint. It should not have a PE number in excess of 30. But because people think it sounds sort of rock and rolly and musically, and it's kind of new, and that spreads like a virus, that idea, you see a, too much capital chasing too few ideas. And this is where I think one of our problems today is, and I, I'll tread lightly here, because capitalism means many things to many different people, but one of the problems of capitalism is that it seems to have forgotten what it is like to build for the long term. I think because it's so financially driven today, it expects short-term payoffs. So going back to your um, um, staircase metaphor, it wants to stay on the next two staircases to find things where you get an alpha return on capital in the short run. Things like, if you think about the internet that started as a military 
scientific experiment. It had absolutely no monetary value and very little utility for about 30 years. And then we found the World Wide Web. And then we had another 10 years where we thought there might be gold in them, there are hills, but all the things we invested in, pets.com, boo.com, went bankrupt because there's, there's just not a financially viable model. And there might still not be, to my Spotify point. How do we create long-term things if it's financially unsustainable, if it's socially dangerous, if it's not something you can make money or friends off of doing, how do we do it? It sounds like you're describe, des describing politics right now. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> well, no, poli so politics, my, my one insight about politics is that um, I always think of, of, of Dallas, you know, the old 80s sit, wasn't a sitcom, it was more like a sit drama. Um, Dynasty, Dallas, uh, Falcon Crest, all of these 80s TV shows who had really simplistic plot lines because it was a different time, right? You had to make episode by episode selling advertisers and maybe you couldn't plan for the next season. So you had a very linear, um, um, childish narrative, goodbye, good guy, bad guy, and so on. Then we had the rise of long-form complex drama, Sopranos, the Wire, and later on, of course, things like Game of Thrones and many others. Politics is still stuck in the narratives of the 80s TV series. It's a very stupid rhetoric of us and theming and simplistic solutions for the short term. It caters to a certain type of base character in us. But there are many people who are interested in and ready for and mature enough to have a long-form political conversation. But that's, that's not going to happen in a debating chamber where you put things against each other or a three-minute clip on the TV news. That's going to happen in things like podcasts or long books or monologues where you're allowed to be wrong, you're allowed to explore different ideas, you're allowed to misunderstand each other without it being a drama. So we have this void for long-form politics. And I don't see any existing political system catering to that. Democracies are very bad at long-term thinking. Dictatorships are good at a kind of singular long-term thinking but they, they tend to only be as good as the leader is. And of course, leadership, like ownership, tends to be a little bit boring after 10, 20, maybe 30 years, which is why we have private equity companies in capitalism and revolutions in dictatorships. So I think, again, a, a kind of long-term political system where the debates are long-form is long overdue. And it's uh, kind of happening a little bit in what you just said about uh, podcasts, for mm. example. What used to be like the main media channel in the US where you had two minutes saying something and some other guy got two minutes and that was it. And then you voted. Now you have, like like we discussed earlier, Joe Rogan's podcast, four hours. 
where they actually can churn out like well you know he had bernie sanders on not for four hours but at least at least for one mm. i mean when do you see bernie sanders getting an hour mm. with that kind of huge audience i mean that's a huge reach that joe rogan has yeah i heard a rumor that i think it was sam harris and joe rogan and somebody else who were going to host presidential debates for the upcoming election that might not be in the cards in the wake of of, of the corona crash but but still, it's an interesting thought experiment, like you said. I, I'm sure they would be able to do it. I mean, the, all the presidential candidates basically have called in to get get some space on Joe Rogan. Mm. Uh, he's had uh, Tulsi Gabbard. He's had uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, it would be interesting to see Trump on Joe Rogan. Mm. I would love mm. to see that. Mm. Uh, um, you could also, you could also. I mean, if we're just f- f- freestyling here, I mean, you're talking about leaders here and candidates, but how much of the societal contract will we be able to run on automation, right? I mean, traffic and sewer systems are self-evident. You don't need somebody to decide. You just need a data feedback loop and an algorithm to say, okay, more, less, stop, maintenance, repair. You don't need people actively thinking about that, possibly, at least not in in the future. Um, But there are many other things like that. I think the situation we're in right now is a great example of that because now you have so many obvious things that you mm. should be doing that this, I mean, there's just not cognitive capacity for the people in charge mm. to make all those decisions. No. I mean, take for example, um, in Sweden we have um, whatever that the English term is for förmånsbeskattning. I'm not sure. Oh, um, what well. Is, Whatever. So it's a benefit, taxation of your benefits. Yeah, right? so you, you get work some kind of benefits. private benefit of yeah. something and they tax you for that. Mm. Having that tax still uh, in, in action right now mm. for uh, food, for example, mm. for, for your staff. Uh, so giving, yeah, so in Sweden you have to pay taxes if you give free food uh, to your employees, which I think is also the case in many other countries. I've heard recently that I think it was Google, right, who took away the free lunches to employees. Right, and and a computer, an AI politician, Mm. a computer would instantly see that, Mm. well, right now, remove that, Have you know some some industries like like uh, medicine, obviously, and Mm. and uh, lawyers and some others are running super hard right now Mm. just to stay on Mm. top of everything. Mm. They're working super hard. If they could get free food from their employer, their employee would be happy to provide that, but they can't because Mm. of this tax. And a computer would instantly, and at the same time, you have all the restaurants going to hell. So a computer would see that and just remove the tax instantly. I'm not saying that that's a silver bullet for anything, but it's it's an example of- One um, thing that would do good. Human politicians having cognitively maxed out in the space of a crisis, technocracy, the idea of having experts running your economy has been in place for quite a long time. It's usually a darling of, of dictators. But we could see that happening in the wake of Lehman Brothers. You had all of these policy advisors because it was such a complex thing. I think most people had a hard time, even if they're having watched the movie The Big Short, having a hard time getting their head around what actually happened and went wrong. So we needed technocrats. Same now, in the wake of the pandemic, we are listening almost blindly to epidemiologists and doctors. And epidemiologists are great at running, um, you know, healthcare systems and prevent pandemics, 
but they are not necessarily very good at running an economy. I mean, I, I, and, and which is also what we see now. We've entrusted too much of an economy because epidemiologists have said the best way to prevent this is to flatten the curve, and the best way to flatten the curve is to keep everybody indoors until we say come out. And I'm saying this in late March 2020, we are trying this experiment in radically revolutionary countries. I mean, it's one thing to do with an inner China who've been held under a dictator's gun for decades. It's another thing to run it in France, where people have been known to guillotine their leaders or put on black vests and fight the police. It's a very dangerous experiment. And I hope an AI politician or any sensible human being shortly comes in and says, you know, we got to try this another way. Yeah, uh, computers are great at uh, working with multiple dimensions at the same time. S people are not. Yeah, and I think, I think the reason this often gets confused is that we start to think that we're going to outsource all of our decision-making to a machine, but that's not the case. Flying an Airbus could not be done with the analog instruments of the 1900s. It's a highly computerized system that gives suggestions to the pilot about what to do. We couldn't get to the moon with a horse and carriage. We needed to invent flight, supersonic flight, um, extraterrestrial flight, a number of things. Again, back to your staircase model. And similar right now, I think what we're, what we're saying here is that the dashboard with which politics is run is either broken or more alarmingly non-existent in many democracies right now. That needs to be changed yeah. and fixed. Or not yet invented. Exactly. I mean, we ha we, if you, it's almost like if you think about a fighter jet, you know, you, you have a pilot make, or you have, I mean, from the beginning, you have a president making the call what to mm. attack, but then you have a pilot making, you know, we go in that direction, we're doing this, we're shooting at that. But then you have the computer making all the small adjustments to keep the, keep the plane stable mm. and, you know, not crashing. Mm. Maybe it's something like that that we need. We need computers making all the small decisions that the, you know, the pilot, you know, the politicians don't have time to make or capacity mm. to make. And then they can make the big decisions of direction and, you know, the big moves and the big decisions basically we could we could run that experiment by using just insights from data that comes from human beings from the past right you'd run a big data experiment what have others done in these situations and what was the outcome that we have data on so it's not a case of a again it's not a case of a machine making decisions for you it's a case like you said of cognitively alleviating people who are over their heads in complex decision-making data information, yeah, like our poor prime minister right now in Sweden. We are doing it actually all the time, only that we use, um, you know, advisors at different levels. Yeah, yeah and an advisor is in essence a, a human big database. Yeah. Uh, an unusually stupid one <laughs> compared to, <laughs> compared yeah, well, to a processor, I guess. I would disagree. <laughs> I would say... I would say there are some things that humans do better when it comes to recalling data and understanding patterns. And again, if we, if we look at Gary Kasparov's insight with the complex chess league, 
the best chess players in the world are the ones who use a computer and human judgment. They are unbeatable, even for Deep Blue or um, Google's chessbot and similar. So I think there's, there's a, we are never going to get to 100% um, computer or 100% automation. We will always value human judgment and human intent. We, there will always be a mystery and a dilemma in the data for the human soul to solve. Yeah, and we're augmenting. Uh, the, the capacity that we have with things that we don't have, which makes sense. It wouldn't make much sense, I guess, to make a computer that's exactly like we are. I mean, imagine that, you know, a computer that's really good at feeling and intuition, but it's really bad at making huge calculations with huge data sets. Why would we need that? We already have that <laughs> in, the mil- in the billions yeah, in of units. Um, I was very inspired by um, the book, The Creativity Code, which was all about how machines are starting to create like human beings, music and arts and math and play um, Go, the board game. But there was also a lot of philosophical musings in that book, what the limits are. And one of the limits when it comes to arts is that we value human intent more than we think. So. Take uh, James Joyce's um, masterpiece, Ulysses. It's a, it's a book which was highly controversial when it came out. James Joyce had invented a character and followed him in Dublin in about 24 hours. And his, he wanted to show everything that could happen inside of a human being, their, their thoughts, their mind, their feelings, their soul, within that space. So it's, it's, a, it's a very... It's a, it's a, it's a vulgar novel. It's a strange novel. The most infamous part of Ulysses has a new style called stream of consciousness, which is the way the human mind works, right? You just think wherever, and you're boundaryless. And, and in the text, um, Joyce removes all the punctuation. So it's a very difficult text to read. Now imagine if I told you, I gave you the text, you'd never read it, and this, is, this book is called Ulysses, Walter. It's written by a bot. You would have like, this fucker is broken. You know, there's no puncture. It's grammatically incorrect. And there's no direction. And what's this about? The reason a human being wrote it is that it's considered a masterpiece. And that so many people trying to find enigmas and intertextual references in the, in the work. Had it been written by a machine, it would have been seen as meaningless. And I see that with things like music. I see it with things like um, script writing and, and books. And a lot of people tell me as well, it's the same with math. Simple calculation, arithmetic, uh, formulas, fine. But solving the big mathematical riddles and enigmas that have been deemed unsolvable, they're behaving in such strange ways. It's impossible to think about how to program a machine to do that. So I think human intent and the, the strangeness in humanity, the fact that we don't really understand how we work. Uh, I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins, the, the biologist, um, who says, he, he was asked, what question would you want answered? What are you dreaming of having answered? And Richard Dawkins said, what is consciousness? 
I mean, what is it, this magic dust of existence? What is it? How does it work? And we don't know that, and we don't see that, and we, we might never know that. Do you meditate? No. Well, that's, uh, that's when you really realize that you don't know what consciousness is. <laughs> I have, uh, like many people in the 21st century, tried meditation on an app, think once or twice I did it in a studio it it really does nothing for me it really does uh, it really doesn't work uh, and I have with good intention tried it um, and I and I'm not I'm not necessarily or at least up to this um, seclusion exercise we're doing now I was not bathing in time because a lot of meditation experts say that you have to do it for you have to stick with it and spend an hour and I I never found time to do that. You think I should give it another chance? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I I meditate ten minutes every day, so I don't do it for an hour. But with an app or analog meditation? Well, sometimes with an app, some, sometimes without an app. Depends what I want to do. But can, 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 so I did a I did a jog this morning. Couldn't, couldn't that be seen as meditation? Yeah. Okay. Of course, if you if you pay attention. Because that's what it's about. Well, I don't necessarily pay. I mean, I what I like about jogging as opposed to spending time in a gym is that you're sort of nowhere. You're just, and I don't listen to anything when I jog. I just listen to the sounds around me. So I'm sort of nowhere. And then I note this sometimes from my body that things got really hard all of a sudden, like I'm panting and I feel my breath and I'm like, should I quit now? And then I usually realize it was connected to some kind of energy-draining thought. So I guess that's that would be characterized as a way of meditating. It's I, I think, uh, to me at least, I think it's different things for different people probably, but I think just when you kind of, your mind kind of wanders away uh, thinking about different things while I run, then then I kind of don't meditate. That's not meditation, okay. You just told me I'm not meditating. Uh, well, I'm yeah. jogging. No, well, I think that if your mind is somewhere, you know, dealing with, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever pro- troubles you in your everyday life or whatever it is, I guess that's meditating on that problem in a way. But I cannot meditate on problems. I am, I am, I've been forced gradually, slowly, but surely to realize in the past decade that my mind is a little bit broken in places. Like I cannot finish certain thoughts. I am not self-motivated. I have, uh, I'm not so interesting. I mean, the stuff I come up with on myself is not that interesting. And this is, and I'm, maybe that insight came from observing my thoughts in a meditative way. But um, I'm tr- the reason I listen to you saying, do you meditate now, is that I'm thinking about ways in which I could try to patch up the brokenness of my mind. Yeah, or just observe it and kind of understand it. And, uh, mm. and just, de- just understanding and accepting something is a really helpful thing. I think in you know for a lot of a lot of issues, but uh, it's interesting too. I think coming from you, you know, given that you spend like I don't know what it is two hundred travel days a year, going around the world, lecturing to people, uh, they pay you a, a huge amount of money for it, 
and you think that your thoughts are not that interesting mm. and that that's that's interesting in its in and of itself right just imagine what an asshole i would be if i <laughs> thought my if i thought i was interesting but maybe that's it maybe that's maybe that's the fuel for that um what should we say that product that you serve to people i have so many issues with the work that i do um the travel the uh, the limitations of the medium we haven't talked about that but a keynote talk needs to be entertaining right i've sat through countless keynotes from chief economists or experts in some arcane subjects that have been content-wise interesting but just dreary to sit through like a real torture session um so it needs to have this entertaining aspect which really limits what you can do in terms of what you can explore I noticed this even more pronounced when I went to see Jordan Peterson, um, the author and thinker, speak in Stockholm. So this was in the fall of 2018. He just made it really big. He had the best-selling book in the world, 12 Rules for Life, and he had a sold-out tour of Europe. And I think this was the second night he'd sold out um, the circus in Stockholm, which seats somewhere like a thousand, maybe two thousand people. You know, he could easily be just have gone up there with like a good PowerPoint deck with his rules and made it like a good stand-up comedy show with some things to think about. I think that was the expectations, but instead. Um, Dr. Peterson has decided that every single speech he gives should be a little bit different from the other ones on this tour. No PowerPoint. So he, he just comes out and he walks and paces the stage and does something which can best be described as rambling. There might have been interesting insights in that the format that he was in really did not support it. So what I'm saying here is that usually you have one media and you have to be a slave to that media. You cannot get up and ramble freeform for 90 minutes if people expect a speech. Neither can you give a keynote speech in text form if people expect a book from you. And you shouldn't try to lecture if you're in an interview situation, which contradicts what I'm doing right now, I guess. <laughs> um, so I... I I, and I, I am limited by the travel. I am limited by being a keynote speaker, regardless of the fees I command. Yeah, but I, I mean, uh, that situation, the keynote situation is some, you know, you have you or whatever, the, the transmitter of the signal, and then you have the receivers of the signal. And f for, for those two to connect, that's where entertainment comes in, because for people to receive and process and remember and, and and feel and act on things entertainment is a hugely beneficial tool something that teachers should probably spend more but what if our teachers would be you know great stand-up comedy people teaching math what do you think yeah, would i don't happen? know <laughs> there was this i remember a 70s book called entertain entertaining ourselves to death um it's very Ted 
that insight, I think. <laughs> it's, I, it's, an insight. it's very it's TED an talk. Um, yeah. I'm inclined to contradict you without having thought of a good answer. While you were asking that, I thought about the number of my talks where I haven't even been entertaining. It's just been really bad. Let me give you an example from the last year. I was presenting for um, people in the transportation industry, so people running train companies and bus companies and airlines. And before me was a former prime minister. And politicians tend to make for pretty good keynote speakers because they've sort of swum, they learn how to swim in dense syrup, right? They've stood on some kind of um, rainy outdoor podium with a number of people uh, who want to just throw eggs at you in the audience and with a really boring message about tax cuts. So they've really learned how to swim in adverse conditions, which makes them for fairly good keynote speakers where people kind of, oh, it's the former prime minister of, let's listen to him or her, this is going to be interesting. And they can usually invite you behind the scenes and be a little bit kind of amusing and joke about their personality. So they usually make very good speakers. So he was up first and did a really fantastic presentation about the big challenges in our world, migration and the economy and Brexit and Donald Trump. Never did he mention the coronavirus pandemic again, but we cannot expect anyone to be able to predict that. No, so the audience, he had the audience eating out of his lap in essence. The, the applause at the end, had, had, the, had the audience not been uh, dry conservative men in their late 50s, easily stand up ovations. But now it's just a long heartfelt applause, which is the dry 50 something man equivalent of a stand up ovation. And then there were some kind of Q and A's and panels and other meaningless things. <clears throat> and then I was up. And I'm off my game. Like, I don't feel it. A, for some reason, this audience has started to irritate me. I've been sitting there the entire afternoon. I, I usually try to do that, sit in and listen and acclimatize myself to the audience. But here, something had gotten to me. I don't know what it was, but I, I was not happy. But that's not this problem in and of itself. Then I'm, I don't know if I have a, a dad issue but because this senior former prime minister had done such a good job, I felt boyish and nervous in a, in a way. It was as if, you know, there's probably something Freudian here. You know, if you feel that your uh, woman has been approached by your father, you will feel inept as a man. That's a little bit what I felt like. So I start to rush through some examples and do... Um, you know, inappropriate jokes around others. And slowly but surely, I'm like, this is really not going well. And here's where the showbiz tyranny comes in. The show must go on, right? You have your 45 minutes on stage. Deliver. So you keep soldiering through. But because you're, you, you were off your game to begin with, nothing fits. Nothing gels. It's like a really shitty concert for an audience which is either drunk or absent. And I just remembered, because uh, I had a musical outro, which I failed to stop. <laughs> you time. know, 
Yeah, exactly. It was it was literally like that David Brent in the office, you know, playing Tina Turner simply the best to an audience which is cringing. That's what it was like. That's what it felt like. So, going back to your TED instinct, wouldn't it be great if teachers were more entertaining? And like, maybe on a good day. But what a what a tyrannical requirement to demand of anyone to entertain, to be funny. Um, and I think that's my third issue, the travel, the content, but then, then thirdly, it's it's a theatrical lie, a keynote. Right? You, you're kind of there and you, you dress up to look a certain way and you smile and you do jokes and you know, if it's paid for by a corporate client, you throw in a joke about how wonderful the accountancy profession is, which these are lies. These are lies. And this has really bugged me. And not only is what I'm saying lies, very often the whole exercise with the company is a lie. I, I don't want to become too existential, but I'm married to a woman from the former Yugoslavia. And, and in Yugoslavia, they had a saying, brotherhood and unity which is called something else in Yugoslavian. But they would always say that. It was a very important thing to say in Yugoslavia. Brotherhood and unity. Tito died. The economy went to hell. Certain countries tried to secede. Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia. The whole former Yugoslavia goes to hell, to war. Brotherhood and unity meant nothing. I very often feel that companies today are stuck in a similar kind of lie. Right? They say things like innovation, creativity, togetherness, but you get a feeling they don't, they don't mean anything. They don't mean anything when things are put on the line, when the chips are down, which is why I guess what we're going through now in the in the wake of the coronavirus is a really interesting experiment to see whether the corporate world that we have built and in certain respects loved will stand this existential test because if it doesn't it was it was built upon the same kind of sand on which Yugoslavia was based or communism or other civilizations that collapsed. It's a, it's a very scary time to be alive, I guess, but, but a very interesting time too. Wow. <laughs> wow. We need to we need to end this on something more. Yeah, I was just gonna say let's this, we go shallow. <laughs> no, no, we need Tell to. me something, girl. <laughs> Are you? No, we got to go shallow here. All right, I don't know why we it went so deep. No, 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 deep is good. We just need to end it on, on something going. So ask me quick questions then. Do that kind of format where, <laughs> like, what's the best no, song? What's no, this? What's no, a book? No, what's no, a no, no, let's not do that. Let's just see what would. So that's the worst yeah. case scenario. What would be the best case scenario? that we survive this. I mean, Nassim Taleb is not only a hero for coining black swans, but also for anti-fragile. What, you know, the things that makes us stronger through stress. 
ideas tend to be made stronger when they're questioned. If we survive this, oh my God. I mean, look at, look at the euro, the currency, which we almost lost in 2012. And Mario Draghi then said, I'll do whatever it takes. It's one of the strongest currencies in the world right now. I mean, the things that don't collapse tend to live for a very long time. And going back to your observation, the things that don't change, it's not that they don't change, it's that they are- Survive. Yeah, they survive, they, they adapt, they, they are strengthened through turbulence. So I, 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 I know it sounded, it sounded very existentialist what I just said, but I did say it is an interesting time to be alive. We're running an experiment on a global scale on the likes that we have never seen before. We see love, generosity, an eagerness to get back to business of helping each other pouring out naturally. I mean, with no states, no state is forcing other people to say, you know what? I'll help you over a webinar for free if you're feeling down, or I'll do my coaching, or I'll buy, I'll buy meals for hospitals for free. We always think we needed the coercion of a state to have altruism. Now we know that that's not the case. So there are, there are many things to be happy about. I think what drew me into negative territory was that you had to bring the way I have done my profession into the mix, flying around giving expensive keynote talks, and I think it's shown through that I, like many others, are curious about what's around the next corner. Yeah, and I think that one of the interesting things about this crisis, as opposed to 2008 or some other uh, crisis that was more a financial one, mm. is that now, I mean, then Darwin kind of came in and just wiped out all the the bad players mm. and the not-so-capable companies and all those now everybody's being wiped out if you happen to be in an industry where you know the virus like restaurants or hospitality in general general mm. public speaking you know mm. Mm. uh doesn't matter how good you are and and that is interesting because it's in one sense it's not you know darwin playing its game and just strengthening everybody it's also wiping out the really great people and if they come back when they come back because i guess most of them will may come back in a completely different way and because you know what if their industry doesn't bounce back for 10 years you know i um i am reminded of a quote by esther perel the couples therapist who has uh, a famous podcast and she's written many books for reasons that shall remain unexplained i read her book on infidelity last year it's called the state of affairs and she talks about how uh, marriages, of course, tend to fall apart when somebody is unfaithful. And one of the reasons for that, apart from the obvious, is that we live in a culture which is more focused on freedom than forgiveness. More focused on like, fuck that idiot, fuck that bitch. They cheated on me, I'm out of here. I'm happy, happy, I'm divorced. And she says it the following way, going back to your Darwinistic point, your first marriage is over. Do you want to try and create a second one together? My first career as a speaker is over. I'm going to try to create a second one. 
and I think the same goes for restaurant owners, um, corporate events managers, and and many others in this turning point we are going through in the in the woods that we find ourselves lost in. Um, and again, it doesn't really matter what you're believing in the wrong run as long as you believe in something. I think that's a great way to end this show. Thank you, Magnus, for uh, coming by my house. I am very sorry about all the mess that I caused, but I'm very grateful for being on your show. Thank you, Walter. Mm-hmm.